0: Called Challenge 2.0. They're called AGAG rules, passed by state legislators to punish people who reveal unsafe, unhealthy, or unethical food production or factory farming. Such rules are only one example of strategies to reduce or eliminate public knowledge and regulation of corporate agriculture and food production methods. But in this episode of Challenge 2.0, we meet a group seeking to counter that pressure and increase access to food that is good, clean, fair, and affordable. So we're delighted to have with us today Mara Welton, who is the Director of Programs for Slow Food USA, and Kim Marshall from Slow Food Seattle. Thank you both so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us today, Jeff. Thank you.
0: What I might ask is much of the food, as we look at this topic and what you're involved in, is much of the food we see available for purchase at supermarkets, largely controlled by what's come to be called big ag and if so if you could explain what exactly big ag uh, is comprised of
1: well from our perspective with slow food um we're very concerned with the commodification of food and the movement of food away from um people's identity and people's heritage um and away from you know small growing organic and um with good good values so like our our trifecta that we always like to say is that slow food is good clean and fair so um big ag is not concerned with good clean and fair food um i think we can all agree that uh capitalism is maybe the main and economics are the main concern of big ag you know uh what's the thing that grows the fastest what's the thing that grows um you know with the least weeds and you know Mm -hmm. what's the thing that can sit on a shelf for a long amount of time and all of these are not Values that really slow food um, values at all. Um, we really are concerned with who grew it, how did it grow, um, was it grown in good soil. Um, Did the people who grew it, were they fairly compensated? Those kinds of things are the things that we're concerned with. Some of those, you know, nowadays there's a lot of small farms that do have their products Mm -hmm. in grocery stores. So I think it's, you know, it's about relationships and it's about people doing a little bit of a deep dive when it comes to their food to really understand if the food that they're getting is aligned with their values.
0: So I would ask both of you, and I might start with Kim on this one, is reflecting that reality uh, how do the foods that you have stored in your pantry, in your kitchen, uh, differ perhaps from what most of us might have?
2: Um, I wish my answer was a little more exciting. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of vegetables in the fridge, uh, root vegetables, squashes, greens, that sort of thing. My pantry has legumes, whole grains, pasta, jams, vinegars, that sort of thing. We eat very simply. Um salad soups that sort of thing it's mostly vegetables um i i don't know how much that is different from other people's
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> mara how about you
1: yeah i um, my husband and i had a farm for a small organic vegetable farm for about 20 years and so i'm always thinking about fresh produce and we don't have we don't really buy things in boxes we buy a lot of whole ingredients and, you know, it's usually like Kim was describing is pretty much what my pantry looks like right now. I, I belong to a bean club, for example. So I get really interesting and rare varieties of heirloom beans that come to my door every quarter and I get to experiment with those and learn their stories and, um, you know, provide some really high quality nutrition to me and my husband mm-hmm. as well. Um, lots of, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. (laughs) That's mostly what I'm focused on. Very few things in boxes or cans.
0: Jumping from that question, uh, Big Ag claims that their model, their way of doing business, is essential uh, to feeding the world and keeping food Mm -hmm. available at low cost. I suspect just from the little bit we've talked so far, you wouldn't agree with that. So why wouldn't you agree with uh, that assertion from Big Ag?
1: Well, your question is focused more about cost right cost of food and i think we can see and in this like we're still in the middle of pandemic times i think we can all agree that you know the reverberation from the pandemic through our uh you know the food system and the way we get our food supplies and and every kind of supply i mean construction is dealing with it too with um supply chain issues not just food but when some giant conglomerate big ag organization you know gamifies food and you know tries to get the cheapest most out of um out of our our land and out of our um production then there's someone is going to lose along that pathway. And so, you know, usually it's the people, the workers get paid less, but then they still hike up the prices because of the volume that they want to put out there. There's a lot of um, economies of scale is something that uh, big ag is very um, interested in. I think in the realm of slow food, we're very concerned about uplifting small farmers and that includes small um, small animal holding farms, um, small dairies, small uh, vegetable and grain producers, because they're really focused on keeping things local and keeping that economy local to their, Mm -hmm. their environment, you know, and to their local economy. And so I think, when you have relationships with a local farmer you can also have things like a, a farm share you know you can mm-hmm. be close close keep that money closer you know every dollar that's spent on a local farm stays closer to home it doesn't get exported out or go to shareholders of a giant corporation that doesn't even think about the people that they're serving you know like but when you have that relationship with your local farmer, you actually get to see the the benefit of that dollar that you spent on that farm share going directly to, the improvements on the farm or, you know, what have you, paying their workers. Um, You feel a lot more tied to your food. And that's really one of the main goals of slow food is just being more aware of all of the things that go into getting you food on your table.
0: Mara, following on from that, uh, the other issue is the impact of that practice of Big Ag on the actual health, uh, the nutritional Mm -hmm. quality of what American consumers are getting. Uh, Mm -hmm. What about that impact of big ag and getting most of our food from that source?
1: Well, one of the things that you can really understand, maybe by looking at the backs of these boxes of food, you'll see similar words like soy, 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 Mm -hmm. corn, 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 you know, like these are the things that they're using, um, are are extracting from our soils, and they're just doing monocrops, right? So the diversity in our diet has gone down significantly because of all of the monocropping practices that happen in big ag. They're not thinking about, you know, the thousands of varieties of legumes, the thousands of varieties of greens, the thousands of varieties of fruits and vegetables that together make us who we are when we eat them, you know, but if you're always eating GMO corn in your diet, you're missing essential nutrients in your diet. So what do they do? They start Putting in vitamins and additives, enriching flowers. and like mm-hmm. you know, if you just use the whole grain, you don't need that enrichment; it's already in there. So there's a there's an extractive economy, not just with the land, or it's also with our nutrition. <laughs> and they, I I'm, I've never quite understood that, to be perfectly honest, because we already have these perfect foods that have all the package that we need, and mm-hmm. we combine them with our diverse diet. So you really you really miss out by not having that biodiversity represented in the food. And Big Ag is really focused on like 10 crops. That's all they care about. You know, like if your your diet could be thousands of things that have micronutrients already that have, you know, textures and flavors and just super inspiring um, varieties out there that really, you know, make eating so much more <laughs> wonderful and fun and nutritious without a question.
0: Because most of the people that are watching this initially are from the Seattle area. What's been your experience in terms of the limited availability of uh, uh, essential foods and nutritionally rich foods in the Seattle area? And what alternatives do you tend to turn to?
2: Um, I think that, that Mara said it really well about supporting local farmers. We have a vibrant farming community here in the Seattle area. Um, and you, you don't have to go far to find really good nutritious food that is grown by people who you meet. Um, In the Seattle area, there's a lot of farmers markets. So you don't have to travel out uh, very far, like to the farms and things like that. You can meet the the people who grew it. And I think that's really important to be able to identify and have a relationship with the person that's growing your food. Um, I also think it's really important to grow a little bit of your own food. I think it's impossible to ask everyone to grow a lot of food or all of their food. Mm-hmm. But when you grow just a little bit of it, I think that you have a greater appreciation for the people that grow your food. So that when you see these amazing carrots that this farmer has, and you think, wow, that's, that's kind of a lot of money and you grow it yourself going, yeah, they don't make nearly enough on those carrots. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of a different perspective.
0: Let me ask you this question that's fundamental. You've been talking about the slow food movement. How did that begin? I understand it didn't actually begin in this mm-hmm. country, but it was a response right. again to a uh, the arrival of a uh, purveyor of fast food. Uh, Mara, maybe that's you can right. share that backstory with us.
1: Sure, absolutely. I'm always happy to share the origin story of slow food and really the easiest way to think about slow food is not about like slow cooking necessarily, or a slow pace. It's really slow food in response to fast food. Mm -hmm. So slow food is everything fast food is not. So that sort of, you know, positions it in your mind exactly what we're talking about. But to your point, um, 1986, uh, our movement got started when A whole slew of folks in Rome were aghast that a fast food giant was trying to put in a one of their franchises there right at the foot of the Spanish steps. And they erupted in in a protest. They actually protested in the streets of bowls of penne pasta and (laughs) said, and they said, if we allow this to happen continuously and just can take over our food supply and take over our food um, identity, then we lose ourselves. We lose who we are if we don't hold on to the where we come from, you know, with mm-hmm. our food. And so that message really reverberated throughout Europe. Um, the slow food movement was born like immediately out of that. The fast food restaurant did happen to uh, get put in. It didn't uh, change the course of that path, but it created a million person movement. You know, That's here right. we are 30, 40, 50, almost 40 something years later. And... You know, there's over a million members of Slow Food Worldwide. Slow Food USA is one of the national chapters. Um, we've been around for um, about 25 years. And, you know, we have about 85 chapters in the US and these are all people that are values aligned. And they're like, yes, food is our identity. Food mm-hmm. is political. Food is important to be central to these conversations around sustainability, around climate, around nutrition. Um, it's what It's what ties us all together.
0: And Kim, I might ask you, how long has the Slow Food Seattle movement been in existence? And what is your reach right now?
2: Yeah, um, the Seattle chapter was founded in 1997. So I think it was like the second chapter in the U.S. Yeah. Wow. So it is, yeah, it's been going strong for a, a long time.
0: Well, the other question I might ask is exactly how is the Slow Food movement seeking to counter the influence of Big Ag, and also the fast food purveyors. We've heard the term used of either uh, food deserts or food insecurity, and it seems that that's a prime focus of you. But Mara, perhaps you can give us some perspectives on that.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I would like to just reposition that a little bit because... In slow food, we don't like to say food deserts because if you live in a desert and you're an inhabitant of the desert, you know it is not a desert. There is nothing but food in the desert if you know where to look. So um, we actually call it food apartheid um, because it's a very intentional um, discrimination of certain groups of people away from their food source. Um, You know, When you think about housing insecurity, when you think about marginalization of communities in urban settings, Um, they're intentionally removed from their food of origin. And it becomes really a battle for basic fundamental access to food. And so, yes, food insecurity is a big piece of what we engage with. There's a lot of mutual aid efforts that are done by um, folks in our network at the various chapters. Um, Lots of like seed libraries have been produced throughout the seed network, or or the Slow Food Network, Um, seed libraries, access fridges in communities with um, excess food. We have a giant event that happens at the end of every April globally called uh, Disco Soup, which is about reclaiming food waste from grocery stores and farms and creating a big community gathering that is all access to people, anyone to have a meal together um, Mm -hmm. from this reclaimed food. So there's lots of ways to engage with this topic throughout Slow Food, no matter where you are. internationally or locally.
0: So let's talk about a couple of the programs and there are national programs, international, and then also local or regional. I think one Mm -hmm. is called the Arc of Taste and the other, the Snail of Approval. So those are very unique names. Maybe explain to us exactly what those stand for.
1: Absolutely. So the Arc of Taste is essentially a a living catalog of rare and endangered and delicious and distinctive varieties of seeds, breeds of animal, um, Types of foods that people are very connected to, but also worried that will disappear if we don't keep them intentionally on our plates. Mm-hmm. Um, there's their heirloom varieties, there are old varieties. There's um, you know breeds of animal that are particularly good at maybe one thing and or another, and not necessarily good for commercial production, but good for a family use. That kind of a thing. So there's um, on the American catalog of the Ark of Taste, we have about. I think it's about 400 and something um, items, food items mm-hmm. that are in the catalog. And um, globally, it's almost 6,000 varieties of things are on the global catalog of the Ark of Taste. And every nation has their own like catalog that they curate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a really, incre- it's an invitation, essentially, the Ark of Taste. It's an invitation to be engaged with and learn about um, foods that have a story. And that connects you to those people and those communities. And maybe makes you a champion of that food and keeps it around um our indigenous friends say they all of these seeds and all of these breeds are are kin you know they are not considered separate from humans they're our relatives Mm -hmm. and so if we think about the arc of taste as like a family album or our our family tree um these are the foods that make us who we are and i think it's a really important catalog to have and to celebrate and in fact slow food has a book coming out this august celebrating the arc of taste. so keep your eye out for that we'll do that and then yeah and then snail of approval is a very specific um award that is given to businesses that are um good clean and fair businesses that are upholding the slow food values in their business practices which is very difficult to do mm-hmm. um it's not it's not focused on profit it's focused on values so um you know it's hard to stay afloat and and it's hard to do both right it's hard to do be a successful business and stay true to your values um so we recognize that it's not a certification it's an um it's an award of excellence that chapters have signed up for and they are the ones that do the awarding to people and their people businesses in their local area
0: uh in terms of the arc of taste snail of approval and other programs here in the pacific northwest what are some of the ones that uh people would find here
2: yeah so right now the seattle and the greater olympia chapters are getting ready to launch a regional snail of approval program and so this will greatly expand our area from uh, Bellingham in the north of the state, uh, down through Seattle and the east side, Tacoma, Olympia, down to maybe the Centralia area. So this will create a lot of opportunities to award snails to those farms and restaurants and food producers that are doing such great work Mm -hmm. uh, in our community. So And our members love to connect with the snails, so it's it's really exciting. also, as far as the Ark of Taste goes, um, the Seattle chapter has boarded four important foods onto the Ark of Taste. Uh, the Marbled Chinook Salmon, the Native Olympia Oyster, the Gooey Duck, and the Macaw Ozette Potato. Um, the Whidbey Island chapter has boarded the Rockwell Bean and the Sugar Hubbard Squash onto the Arc of Taste. Uh, we have a, uh, the Land and Sea chapter up in Friday Harbor, uh, has a community garden, which is a real draw and an asset to that community. Mm-hmm. And they are planting numerous uh, foods from the Ark of Taste in there and educating the community in, in those foods. So we have, um, yeah, a vibrant community of chapters up here.
0: When we hear people uh, criticize the movement toward organic food some of the elements that we've been talking about, they say, well, it's more expensive, but there are certain elements of the food production process that are being ignored. What are some of those things that are being ignored? And Mara, I might uh, <laughs> direct that question to you at least initially.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I love this conversation because I, I myself was an organic farmer and I was deep in that conversation all the time with my customers. And I, I, can tell you that labor is one of those things that often gets ignored and, you know, farm workers historically don't get paid well, but guess what, they work so hard and it's labor worth valuing. So, um, and also when you have organic as part of the conversation, the crops that are being planted are going to require a lot more hands-on effort Mm -hmm. because you're not just spraying to remove weeds you're actually employing people to pick weeds so that's a piece of that conversation that always gets ignored is like what are the people being paid and in an organic situation you need people to be doing most of the work you can't um so outsource it to chemicals so that's that's a big piece of that conversation also um uh usually it's a very hands-on and a small operation or um And there's certification processes for being organic that are also quite expensive. So all of those kinds of factors play into the pricing.
0: And aren't we also beginning to find out that exposure uh, through foodstuffs to pesticides, herbicides are having a very real health impact uh, on our health?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I'm not a nutritionist, but I do know that, you know, when you have a lot of chemicals in your system that are not natural, it causes problems. And and, and there's some corporations and pharmaceutical industries that are getting that, that hen is coming home to roost now, right? Because these chemicals have been in our food for a critical period. And we're starting to see you know, sensitivities. I think someone was just saying recently that even like the gluten-free situation is caused by glyphosate exposure you know, mm. when people become very sensitive to grains and it's because grains are one of the most sprayed um, crops out there then, you know, it's, it's there. there's these dirty crops, you can look up lists of the dirty crops to avoid and you know, like grains are one, strawberries are another, broccoli are another. And so there's certain ones, if you wanna just make a, a slow transition to organics, you can like look at the worst ones that carry the most pesticide residue and don't select those. Make those the organic choices that you make.
0: From what I understand at the uh, slow food movement, there's also the social and philosophical aspect of what dining together can bring us uh, as opposed to the sort of grab and go mentality. Uh, mm-hmm. What would what would your thoughts be on that?
1: I've got so many thoughts on this. <laughs> um, what <laughs> well, It's a great question because, you know, I think, the social aspect of food can't be underscored. You know, I mean, we just can't talk about it enough. I mean, it's the, it's one of the reasons we gather, look at Thanksgiving, for example. I mean, you know, people come together around food and they have some of their deepest, most uh, cherished conversations and memories are around food. I think we can all like harken back to, you know, cooking and baking things with our grandparents, you know, and like, those are some cherished memories. The food memory, piece of slow food is a very personal one, right? It's what, it's what keeps us in this work, I think a lot of the time. Um, because you're always striving for that opportunity to have that sit-down meal with a Mm -hmm. good friend or a good pal. Um, And a lot of the programming that chapters do revolves around, you know, gathering around a meal. There's a a very rich potluck history along slow food uh, chapters um, Mm -hmm. nationwide, for sure. There's also, um, you know, the white tablecloth dinners for fundraisers and stuff that really feature – Specific slow food varieties that they want to educate people on. So we have like very educational dinners that happen throughout the network as well. But also, you know, gathering can just really be good for your health. (laughs) You know, I think we all, when we had the pandemic, we were all so sequestered. And I think it was very difficult for a lot of people to not be able to do their regular routine dining out and being Mm -hmm. just being near people, let alone eating with people. so it's it's sort of the excuse to get together and then the good stuff happens once we are together right we can talk about the stories of these plants and animals and you know why we're connected to this particular recipe or another yeah
0: well there's also i think some evidence in uh psychology and the social sciences that suggests that if we spend more time together over food it strengthens bonds Whereas very sure. often if people are running off to and not to pick on a sport, but soccer practice or baseball mm-hmm. or something like that, those family ties tend to suffer a little bit. Would you agree with that?
1: I yeah, I know that to be true. And I think, you know, eating with people is an intimate act, you know, like you're you're sharing food, you're sharing liquids and foods and you know things that maybe you've touched and you're passing it's like it's a very intimate act to eat with people and it's, it's a vulnerable act to some degree so when you're being vulnerable and intimate with people around you, you those ties are always going to be stronger and you're always going to have those moments to remember i think that
2: mara said it really well that is really when the conversations happen it's when you connect with each other you know, and during the pandemic, that is something that people missed. Mm -hmm. And um, especially our members of Slow Food, you know, they missed gathering together and sharing food and and talking about it.
0: I thank both of you very, very much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and some new ideas for people to think about and gain new perspectives. So thank you both very much. And thank you everyone for watching this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of paths to understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.